Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Our scripture this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 24. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The letter of Ephesians has a lot to say to us about what the transformation Jesus brings to us in our world here and now is to look like. It says that following Jesus is not a matter of checking a box so that you know that the eternal destiny at the end of your life is secure and until then you're left to your own devices. The message of Jesus is more than just a fire insurance policy. The message of Jesus is more than a set of rules to keep now so you can receive a good return on investment later down the road. The life Jesus calls us to is the life that we were actually created to live in. And that's why we've called this series Practice Resurrection. Because the resurrected life that awaits us in eternity is the life that God created humanity to have. And so as followers of Jesus, we practice that life now. We, we anticipate the day when we will participate in that life fully. Uh, this is a life that is available right here and right now because Jesus reigns over all things. Paul described that for us in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a life that is possible because of the grace of God that was extended to us even when we were living in death. It means that all people can be united together in Christ, as Paul described in chapter 2. It's a life that is the fulfillment of God's purposes and plans for our lives and for all of world history, as Paul described in chapter 3. And as Paul describes in chapter 4, it's a life that we are invited into right here and right now. And so Paul is describing what this life is supposed to look like. We began this chapter last week by looking at the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4, which call us to walk worthy of the calling that Jesus has given us. And from there, Paul described what it looks like for us to fulfill that calling in our life together. And we saw in that passage a vision cast for us of what life with God is supposed to look like in community. And in the rest of this chapter, in the passage that Jim just read for us, and in the passage at the end of this chapter that we're going to look at next week, Paul is speaking more directly about what should take place in our lives so that that vision he's cast for us can be realized. 
He'll begin today with some things in general about the life we've left behind that should stay behind. And next week in verses 25 to 32, we'll get into some more specifics about how to live a life that practices resurrection. But anytime we come across a passage like this, there might be a part of us that is wondering if maybe it is asking too much of us. I mean, we have said Jesus saves us by grace. He grows us into his likeness by grace. He sustains us by his grace. And now Paul shifts and starts talking about all the different things that we are supposed to do. And a part of us thinks that sure doesn't sound like grace. It sounds like legalism. It sounds like checking boxes to earn our standing before God. So how can we say that we are saved by grace while at the same time listening to these commands? Well, it's possible because... Because it's the resurrection life that we are created for. If a doctor were to come to you and tell you that you have a condition that will kill you unless you start taking this specific medication immediately, my guess is your reaction to that doctor is not that they are overbearing or closed-minded or trying to ruin your life. My guess is your reaction to them would be gratefulness that they are giving you the solution to your problem. And that is what is taking place in this passage. We can read this passage full of commands that Paul lays out and think, well, Paul should just keep his nose out of my business. I'm going to do what I want to do. But at the same time, I know from my own experience that trying to figure out life on my own rarely goes well for me because I am not my own creator. I often do the wrong thing thinking that it is the right thing to do, or at least I am capable of doing it pretty often. It also means that I am capable of doing the wrong thing, knowing full well that it is the wrong thing to do, and and just not caring that that is the case. And my guess is I'm not the only one, or at least I hope I'm not. And if we're willing to admit that, well, then the next step is to admit that if the one who created us is telling us how we are to live, he might be describing the life that we were actually created for. He's not making demands on us just because he's trying to take away our fun. He is showing us how we can thrive. And that's what the commands of this chapter are getting at. I think that's worth keeping in our minds as we look at these verses. This is not a checklist from a boss telling you what you have to do if you want to keep your job. This is a loving father, the God who created you and loves you more than you could ever imagine, describing how you were created to live. So we're going to walk through these verses we've heard read to try to get a sense of what this life is supposed to look like. And we'll break it into three sections. In the first section, in verses 17 to 19, Paul describes what not to do. In verses 20 and 21, he says why we shouldn't do it. And then in the third section, in verses 22 to 24, he tells us what to do instead. And so first, what not to do is live as you lived before you knew Christ. Because it is a life that is futile. If you've ever watched someone or you have been the person who has worked at a garden day after day, you've been out there tilling and and raking and doing all the things and watering it, and day after day you invest in this garden, and at the end of the day nothing grows out of it. That is the sort of life that Paul describes for the person who is apart from Christ. And he says that that's the way the Ephesians used to live before they met Jesus. He says it's a life of darkness, a life of wandering around, trying to feel your way along with no idea of your surroundings. It's a life that's separated from God, who is our creator and sustainer. It's a life that has rejected God, which is the default mode of the human heart. I've never heard of a parent sitting their kid down and saying, okay, Timmy, today's the day where I'm going to teach you how to be selfish. It seems like we all kind of figure out selfishness on our own. 
And that's something that comes out of the deeper problem of our natural bent against God and his calling over us. That is the power of sin and death at work within us. And Paul says that is our default posture. And when it is, our hearts become hardened against God and his desires. And when that becomes true, we, we become ignorant. We do what is wrong because we don't even know any better. We are so against God and his calling over us. On Monday night this past week, Joey Caro and I were trying to take apart a recliner, and neither of us knew how to do it, and we weren't going to look at the instructions, because that makes no sense, and, and we couldn't figure out how to get it taken apart, so we just were pulling and yanking and twisting and doing anything we could to try to get some movement until we eventually figured it out, and up until that point, our ignorance was leading to futility, doing the same thing over and over again, even though we know it wasn't working, just trying anything that we thought might work. And that is sort of like the approach to life Paul's describing in these verses apart from Jesus. And that leads, as Paul says in verse 19, to a loss of sensitivity, a callousness to the world around us, an inability to consider the implications of how our actions affect others. And that leads to sensuality, to impurity, to greed, to acting for the sake of your own short-term self-interest, causing damage to yourself and those around you in the process. It's a life that is only concerned with what will bring me the most pleasure in this moment, no matter of what kind of pain or harm it causes me down the road or the people around me right now. It's a life that does not care about rules or norms because those are just barriers to what I want. It is a life that does not consider consequences. It's a life of looking out for yourself. It is a downward spiral, rejecting God, leading to all sorts of other things that take us away from the life that God desires for us. And that is a pretty dark portrait to paint. These verses can sound judgmental, as if Paul's up in an ivory tower looking down at all the people that aren't as enlightened as he is. It's a description that sounds pretty us versus them, of looking at the world around us and feeling smug because we figured something out that no one else was smart enough to figure out. And it can sound that way until we remember who Paul is writing these words to. He says in these verses that the Ephesians should not live or walk as the Gentiles do because their thinking is futile. But he says that to a group of people that are a majority Gentile. He tells Gentiles to stop acting like Gentiles, which maybe seems a little odd. It'd be like me saying to this room to start, to start saying the word bag like it's actually spelled. I just... You know, we just need to cover that. It's an A in the middle of it, not an E. That's, that's a different lesson later in grammar. Paul is telling them to reject what they've known for the sake of taking hold of Christ. But that might sound like a contradiction to what he's already said. We've emphasized last week that, that Jesus has united all people together as one body, and that body does many different things together to contribute to the common cause of growing to maturity in Jesus. But this might come across as Paul saying that, well, some people get to come as they are, but not everyone. And what Paul's actually saying is that all who come into God's kingdom enter into something entirely different. They are in Christ. They've been given a new identity. That means that while it is still true that everyone is different, they have unique characteristics and things to contribute to this body of Christ, those unique things are run through the filter of who we are in Jesus. That doesn't mean the Ephesians have to become a completely different person to clean themselves up in order to be right with God, but it means that the things unique about them are to be formed by the cross. They remain ethnically Gentile, but they are in Christ. 
And that is more important than any other aspect of their identity. These verses call us to reject anything and everything that is not aligned with the ways of Jesus, no matter how central those things might be to who we perceive ourselves to be. We might read these verses, and if you've been around church for very long, think, well, yeah, it sounds pretty obvious. You shouldn't be greedy or selfish or impure or whatever it might be. But Paul has to write these words because they were not obvious to everyone in his day. The Roman Empire was a culture built on and sustained by violence. It was a culture that prioritized sexual pleasure, especially for the highest classes of society. It said that if you were high enough on the social ladder, you could do whatever you wanted to whomever you wanted. It was a society with many gods to choose from for worship. And some of them even included sexual pleasure as a part of their practices. And to people that have spent their entire life swimming in the water of a society like that, Paul says that Jesus is different from any other God you've encountered before. He's not someone who you can use as a front for what you wanted to do anyway. He is not one good thing to mix in with all the other good things. He's your creator, your savior, and your Lord. And he's calling you to life on his terms. And therefore, he calls us to reject the parts of our lives that we had known before that undermine the life he is calling us to so that we can instead take hold of life with him. And if Paul were writing this letter to us, I don't know what he would say. My guess is he probably wouldn't write the exact same words, point out the exact same things, but that doesn't mean that there are not things in our world. That does not mean there are not things in our lives that do not align with the ways of Jesus and are to be rejected so that we can take hold of the life God desires for us. We too need to be reminded that our desires and the desires of Jesus are not always the same thing. And when those things don't align, it is the desires of Jesus that have to win out. We too need to be told to let go of the things that we've known before that lead us into death so that we can take hold of life in Christ. Ephesus was a large, diverse, cosmopolitan city that prided itself on its temple to the goddess Artemis, which we've already mentioned during this series. And the assumption was that to be a good citizen of the city of Ephesus meant that you were involved in worship of the goddess Artemis. Sure, you could sprinkle in other gods if they would help you out. If you wanted to worship other gods, subscribe to different teachings, that was fine. But you needed to have Artemis in the mix. We live in a world that might tell us that sure, religion is fine if that works for you, but don't expect it to be the most important thing in your life. We live in a world that tells us if you really want to have meaning, you need to add in your career, your success, your kids' success, whatever it might be. And the message of Jesus in ancient Ephesus said the same thing that it says to us today, that we need Jesus and Jesus alone. We don't need Jesus plus anything else. We need Jesus and his desires for our life if we want to experience the life we were created to have. The city of Ephesus was also a hub for worship of the, the emperor and his family. Temples were built across the empire for the sake of offering sacrifices to the emperor and his ancestors as if they were God, so that there would be blessing on the cities and the empire as a whole. And if you wanted life to go well for you, for your community, for the empire as a whole, you needed to participate in this. And if things were not going well, the assumption would be that, well, someone's dropping the ball somewhere with these sacrifices that we're supposed to be giving and it's maybe not the exact same, but we live in a world that I think for the most part, or in many ways, has rejected religion. And within that vacuum created there, we've replaced it with the idea that politics is going to solve all our problems. 
We live in a moment of history that maybe is not all that different from any other one where there are wars abroad and uncertainty at home. We can think that the solution must be to invest more deeply in politics, to watch a little more news, vote a little more, protest a little more, and then all of our problems will go away. And in ancient Ephesus and today, the message of Jesus says that there is one true God and King over all things, and his name is Jesus. He's the one we trust in above all else. He is the one whose agenda can bring us true, lasting life and peace, and we will not find it anywhere else. God is calling us into life with him. But there are messages around us each and every day calling us into life somewhere else. When you begin following Jesus, you step into a new life with God, a life that brings with it a new identity. The life pitched to us by our world is one that says to place ourselves at the center, to seek your fulfillment above all else. The identity that comes in Jesus says that looking first to our own desires eventually brings harm to ourselves and those around us, but that Jesus has come to bring us life that has lived within God's, God's desires for us. The message of Jesus says we've been given a new identity. We've been brought into a new kingdom, and therefore there are new practices to carry out. Instead of a life that puts us at the center, we've been called to look to the needs of others, seek unity and peace, take on a resurrected identity so that we and those around us can be renewed into all that God desires as we participate in life with our God. Because life apart from God, life as we have known it, is one that leads to isolation and destruction, but our resurrected identity in Christ leads us to life. So if we're not to walk as we've known before, because it leads us to destruction. We need something better. We need something more fulfilling because otherwise we will just be pulled back towards what we have already known. I am far from an expert on mountain biking, but I've, known ju I've done just enough in my life to know that if you are mountain biking through the woods, there's very little time to enjoy the scenery around you. In fact, while you're in motion, if you are looking at the trees around you, enjoying the scenery, the rocks, whatever it might be, pretty soon you're going to ride into something that you're looking at. And so you have to look and you have to remain focused on the trail and the trail alone. And I think in the same way, in these verses, Paul is saying something to the effect of focusing, something to the effect of calling us to focus on the one true message in a world of lies. We, we, if we spend our time looking around at all the other things around us, sooner or later we are going to crash. And Paul has shown us the danger of that, and now he describes what to focus on instead. Because the end of this story is not, well, we're just all trying to figure it out, and some are ahead of others. The end is that if you have learned Christ, which is what Paul literally says in, in these verses, then your story is different. And living that different story doesn't lead to arrogance, it doesn't lead to superiority, but it gives us a new and better story to follow. It's a story of what God has been doing since creation to align all things after his purposes. It's a story that reaches its climax in Jesus coming to this earth to live and die and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. That is our foundation. That is what we have learned. We've not learned doctrines that we have to memorize in order to achieve enlightenment. We've not learned a set of rules that we have to keep. We have learned Christ. We've not been given teachings. We've been given a person. We've been called to walk in him, to walk in his footsteps, to grow into all that he desires for us to be in this new identity. And we are called to 
do all of this, even though it means we might look strange at times. That as we do the things Paul describes, even in what we've seen so far, as we get rid of sensuality and impurity and greed and all the other things that lead us away from God and into death in the midst of a world that is still living out the story of that old identity, that means that we will stand out. We might look odd. We might look like someone dancing while we can't hear the music. If you can picture what that might look like, if you were watching someone through glass or something and they were dancing but you couldn't hear the music that they were dancing to, my guess is it would look kind of strange because you can't hear the thing that is motivating them, that is causing them to move, and everything that goes with that. But if you can hear the music, then everything fits together. You can understand why they are doing what they are doing and where it is coming from and, and what is guiding their movements. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. There are moments where we look like we're doing something strange to someone who cannot hear the music, but that's, that's okay. That just means they can't hear the music. There will come a day when the music of resurrection will play for all, and God will make all things new. But until that day, we dance in anticipation of the day when we will hear it fully as we step into that resurrected identity. Because we have learned Christ. And we know that his resurrected life is making its way into our world and into our lives. And we want to live out that better story that resurrected life with Jesus has to offer us. Because we have learned Christ, we are called to step into this new identity. That truth revealed in Jesus, the truth he embodied perfectly, the truth we are invited to live out is the life God desires for us. And for that reason... We take off our, our old self. We take off the identity we've known before. We put on the new self. Paul uses this imagery of changing clothing to communicate the transformation that Jesus brings as we step into a resurrected identity. And cultures across the world have all sorts of ceremonies and rituals related to clothing that demonstrate when a major transition in life has happened. In the Roman Empire that Paul was a part of, there were ceremonies for, for those in the higher classes of society to demonstrate that a boy had become a man where they would put on a new toga. They would put on new clothing to demonstrate that they had moved from boyhood into adulthood, and therefore there were different expectations and responsibilities being placed upon them. And in our culture today, we have things like graduation ceremonies where someone turns the tassel on that weird little hat that graduates have to wear. And there's nothing magical happening in that moment. As you walk across the stage, as you shake someone's hand, as you're handed a diploma, as that tassel's turned on your hat, there's, there's no life-altering transformation that happens in or on you in that moment, but something's being communicated with that clothing. It's being communicated that you've completed your studies. It's being communicated that you've made it through this season of life, and therefore you're entering into a new one. It's being communicated that new opportunities are open to you, that new expectations are placed upon you, that life is different now, and that's demonstrated through how your clothing has changed. And Paul tells us that if we have stepped into life in Christ, we have taken on a new identity, we've put, in, we've put on new clothes, we have been invited into a new and better life that is far different and is how we were created to live. Because the old life we have known is deteriorating and diminishing and spoiling. It's the second law of thermodynamics at work. Here in a few weeks, if you wanted, while you were cooking your Thanksgiving meal, you could take that turkey out of the oven, and my guess is you'll probably set it on the kitchen counter or something for a little bit, and it'll cool off a little bit before you put it on the table for everyone to eat as a meal. But if you could imagine 
If you left it there for a long time, things would start to happen. It's not a problem to let your turkey sit on the kitchen counter for a couple weeks, or for a couple hours, a few minutes. I got ahead of myself, because if you did let it sit there for a couple weeks, things would start to happen. It would start to get colder, which isn't that big a deal, but means it's probably not as enjoyable to eat. If you left it there for a month, you're probably going to start to notice new and interesting smells. You're probably going to start to notice new and interesting visitors in your house coming in and wanting to explore what you've left on your kitchen counter for a month or more. And all of us are subject to that second law of thermodynamics, the law that all things are decaying and diminishing. We might not see it as dramatically as leaving a Thanksgiving turkey on your kitchen counter for a month, but apart from life in Jesus, we are decaying. We have aches and pains and diseases. We have all sorts of other things. We are slowly descending into death. And that's the end result of life apart from God. But we've been given a new and better identity. We've been invited into resurrected life. We've been invited to take off those old clothes of decay and destruction and put on the new self of resurrected life with our God. And that new life is one of righteousness and holiness. And those are two terms that can sound a little self-important, but that's not the sort of resurrected identity Paul is calling us to here because he's not talking about our righteousness and holiness. He's talking about God's that we get to participate in. We're called to embody God's righteousness. We're called to do all things right as God intended to play a part in making his rule and reign known. We're called to embody God's holiness, his perfection, his otherness that is better than anything our world has to offer. And that holiness that is invading this world that is headed towards death through us is bringing resurrection to ourselves and the world around us as we live out the resurrected identity that God has created us for, the better story God is inviting you and me to participate in. This is the life that God is inviting each of us to step into. No matter who you are, uh, no matter how far from God you might be, or no matter how far from God you might feel this morning, no matter what you did in the last week or last night or the last month, he's inviting you to put on this new self, to leave a life that is decaying and leads to death and to step into his resurrected identity. He's not asking you to get yourself cleaned up and then he might consider letting you in. He's calling you into a resurrected life. He's calling you into the life you were created for, the life that he designed for you, life with him. And it is available right here and right now. I don't know how many of you possessed something like this when you were in high school, or maybe you do currently, but I have brought with me as a prop this morning my high school letterman jacket. And it's quite the thing, let me tell you. It's got my name on it here, just in case I forget. Uh, my first name on the front, my last name on the back. And, and I don't know about you, but there was a season in life where having one of these was a big deal because they looked nice. They communicated something about who you were and what you'd achieved. If you looked at this closely, you'd see there's more academic awards on this one than athletic awards, which tells you, maybe just tells you I haven't changed that much. I don't know. There's a lot going on here. I'm not going to put it on for you because we're live streaming our service and I know the friends I have in other parts of the country and they would get a picture of it and it'd be used against me for years. So I'm not going to subject myself to that this morning, but I'm pretty sure it would still fit me. And I don't say that to brag. The, the takeaway there is less like, wow, Monty's in his 30, almost 30 and he can still wear his clothes from high school. It's more, wow, maybe in his 30s he'll finally grow into the clothes he had in high school. Um, 
This, this jacket has sentimental value to me, but, but it really doesn't have much value to it more than that. It, there was a time in life where it meant a lot, where I wore it most days through the winter. Uh, but I'm relatively certain I haven't put it on since the day I graduated from high school. Uh, there, there's nothing wrong with it necessarily, but it represents a, a season of life that has passed. It, it represents an old self, if I can use the language of, of Paul in Ephesians 4. Uh, it, it represents a life that is that was mine, but is not the present any longer, and it would be odd for me to want or to try to go back to that life. Have you ever seen someone wearing a high school letter jacket after they graduated high school, or, or someone in adulthood still living off their achievements in high school? It's just a little odd and mainly just sad. And in the same way, when I was in high school, I could not imagine a scenario where I would be wearing a suit coat like this on a Sunday morning. Uh, that was a life that was completely foreign to me. And just as I've made that transition in in jackets, I guess if I can put it that way, I think that's a little bit of a glimpse into the life Paul is calling us into in Ephesians chapter 4. I don't know what your life was like before meeting Jesus or what your life is like now apart from Jesus, but maybe we wonder at times if we're missing out. You know, you know we can wonder if Life would be better if we did it our way or someone else's way or whatever it might be. Maybe you've gone through old photos, you've pulled out your old high school letter jacket, and you've thought, you know, I was actually kind of something in high school. I was a little thinner, I had a lot more hair, I could run faster, I could jump higher, whatever it might be. Maybe that life wasn't so bad. Maybe that life was better than the life I have now. Maybe I should try to go back to that. But, but that jacket, those pictures, those memories, whatever it might be, they are, they're in decay. They're wasting away just like how we are apart from Christ. Those things we knew before were futile. We've been called to put on a new self. Jesus is calling us into something different. He's calling us into something better. He's calling us into a resurrected identity. He's calling us into the life we were created to live. So don't put off stepping into that life for another second. If you have a decision to make, if you've never had life with Jesus and you need to step into that today, let's have a conversation about what that looks like. If you just need help figuring out what the next steps are for you as you are walking with Jesus, find me, find someone to talk to, to pray with, to stop by the Welcome Center before you leave the building today. We would love to talk with you, pray with you, encourage, with, encourage you, set up a time to meet later, whatever you might need so that you can step more deeply into this resurrected identity that Jesus desires for you. Because this life is not something for far off in the future. I'm not calling you to get your affairs in order for down the road. I'm calling you to step into this life right here and right now because it is life as God intended. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the life that is available to us in your son, Jesus. That though we were dead, though we were sinners, though we were your enemies, Christ came to make us new, to bring us to life, to bring us into your light, to set us free. God, forgive us when we go astray. Forgive us for when we try to find life on our own or how we knew it before. God, we pray for your presence among us, for your wisdom, for your spirit to be poured out on us so that we can know what it looks like to step into life with you. God, this is a daily 
struggle, a choice each and every day to take off what we've known before and put on life in you. So help us to know what that looks like as individuals and as your people so that we might have life with you as you created us for. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.